Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited today with our guest. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, pivoting, raising money on the debt side, on the equity side, you name it. You know, you're going to find this interview quite inspiring. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Let's see if I say this right. Bharat Krishnamurthy. Perfect, man. Welcome to the show. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be on. Amazing. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here. How was life growing up? Because I know that you moved in quite a bit. Growing up was great. I think it was probably more fun for me than my parents. Uh, they both worked full-time jobs, had three kids to raise. Uh, and I was definitely a handful. I was a bit of a nightmare child, got into a ton of trouble growing up, was always a really bad student. So I, I think that was tough. You know, and I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to this where you're it feels like the system is designed for a certain type of person. And, you know, I wasn't that person. And so it caused a lot of uh, issues for me and, and sort of conflicts generally. But uh, overall, things are good. You know, I'm, I'm happy with how everything turned out. I had a lot of fun growing up. Um, you know, looking back on it, wish I probably didn't, I probably, probably wish I didn't put my parents through so much stress. But overall, it was good. So in your case, I mean, what would you say that ended up triggering, you know, going into the law, you know, path? 
you know, because obviously you ended up um, working at one of the top law firms actually in the country, probably in the world, you know, when we're, you know, talking about different types of practice. But, but in this case, why becoming a lawyer? Yeah, so funny story. I actually got into a lot of trouble in high school and I was 17 when I graduated. So I wasn't legally allowed to take out student loans by myself. Uh, so my parents conditioned them co-signing my loans on me agreeing to go to law school. So it was, it was very much a, a sort of top-down decision. You know, I think from my perspective, it was also like, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I always had this sort of entrepreneurial itch, but I hadn't really thought about it as a, like a viable career path. Like, oh, this is something I can actually just go do. Um, and so, you know, I got into Columbia. It's a great school. Figured it can't hurt to go there and, and get this degree. I think, you know, part of the issue is that when you're 20 years old, and you're making decisions about borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars, those numbers are really abstract, right? And you, you don't really know what it means. And so to me, the decision was like, all right, I get to move to New York, uh, make my parents happy, and get this cool degree. And so it, it kind of seemed like a good move. Definitely, it's a cool degree. You know, also coming from a lawyer turned entrepreneur. So I guess here, you know, the question for you is, what, what department were you, you know, doing there in, in Gibson? I mean, what was the kind of practice? So I bounced a lot, bounced around a lot while I was there, but it was primarily uh, I did work in the M and A and private equity groups. And when we're thinking about deal making, right? You know, because I'm sure that you did see quite a bit of things there on the on the deal making side. You know, especially like negotiating stuff. I mean, what were some of the key uh, ingredients that you saw on good deals really coming together? Yeah, that's interesting. So I think one thing I took away from that is the quality of work product that Gibson Dunn produced, where you know th there's just no mistakes in these documents, right? They proofread things a hundred times. They were very precise about the way things were done. They had an extremely high bar for quality. And that was very new to me, you know, coming from someone who really didn't care much about the work product he was producing for school. Uh, and, and that's something I've tried to carry over into my work at Denim making sure that anything we produce and, and share with an external party is like the best possible work that we can produce. And it, it's also a thing that, you know, I, I look at when we're evaluating people to work with, right? When we see law firms, you know, we work with a bunch of different law firms. When we work with firms that are like sloppy, you, you kind of assume that like, all right, if they're sloppy with this stuff, who knows if they're handling the important stuff, right? Uh, and so we've, we've always tried to work with people who take that same sort of care with their work product. Now, it sounds like uh, you had made it happen. You know, you made your parents, you know, very happy, you know, by now being a lawyer. <laughs> so uh, yeah. why, you know, at what point do you realize, I don't think this is for me. And, uh, and at what point do you realize, you know, that it's time to obviously, you know, like take the leap of faith and, and going at it. And more importantly, you know, how was that process of, really coming to the realization that your time had come to really bring a company to life? Yeah, that's a, a great series of questions. So, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I think I always had this entrepreneurial itch, right? From the time I was very young through high school, college, I was always starting random businesses with either by myself or with friends. Um, I remember when I was like seven years old, I, uh, me and one of the kids in the neighborhood went around trying to play violin for all the neighbors, charged them like 25 cents a song, which was a uh, you know, bad business because we were horrible. But 
uh, I think it reflected this this internal itch that that I had to do something like that. And it, I guess it was around the time that I had graduated from college, early in my time at law school, where I realized that like this is this is like a viable career path, right? Like people just go and start companies, and that's kind of how the economy works, right? That's where all these businesses come from. And so by that point, I think I knew, like when I was in law school, I think I knew that ultimately I was going to go start a business. Uh, and it's something that me and my co-founder, Sean, who's my high school best friend, had been talking about a lot, you know, throughout college, while I was at law school, um, and, and afterwards. And those conversations became more and more concrete that like, yes, we should really do this. It's not as crazy as it seems. Um, one of the big open questions for me is like, when can I do this? Because, you know, by the time that I was in law school, it became clear that I was going to graduate with, you know, $250,000 in student loans which is a pretty daunting position to be in as, you know, a 23 year old. And my initial thinking was like, okay, I will probably have to work for like five to 10 years to pay off the bulk of this debt before I can be in a position to take the kind of risk that's required to start a company. Uh, and I actually had this one conversation that completely changed my perspective on this. I, I met Andrew Yang, who, um, you know, a, a lot of your listeners probably know from his, his, his campaign to run for president. and he gave me this this phenomenal advice, which was basically that, you know, girls don't know how much debt you're in. And it's kind of a cheeky way of, of communicating that regardless of how much student debt you have, you're still in a position to do things like go on dates, right? You can still read books. You can still uh, find work that you really enjoy. You can take risks and the government's not going to come after you and arrest you or something, right? People use it as an excuse that they have the student debt to be like, oh, because I'm $200,000 in debt, I can only do X, Y, Z, and I can't do it what I really want in life. And he was basically saying, like, that's not the case, right? You can, you can go out there and take risks, and you're going to have to adjust your life accordingly, but it's possible. Uh, and, and that one conversation really changed my thinking to the point where I was like, okay, I don't need to pay off my loans. The point at which I'm ready to quit my job and start a company is when I know what that company is going to be, right? And so... Around this time, it also became pretty clear that if, if I was going to start a company, it was definitely going to be with Sean. And so Sean and I were ideating on different businesses and uh, testing out different ideas by, you know, whenever we landed on, a, on, a, on an idea, we'd talk to a bunch of people in that space to try to understand, like, is this viable? Does it have legs? And, and one of these ideas was this idea for BusBot, which was a pricing and scheduling solution for intercity buses. If you think about Greyhound, Megabus, there's dozens of smaller regional operators um, that essentially operate like low-cost airlines, but they are making these pricing and scheduling decisions by hand. So we figured, hey, we can build software to automate and improve that process for them. And um, we had gotten some early indication of, of interest, right? We'd got effectively like a letter of intent from one of the bigger operators on the, the DC to New York corridor. And we had just gotten our bonuses at Gibson. Um, and I figured like, you, you know what, now is as good a time as any. So I quit my job. A few months later, Sean quit his job. He moved in with my, he moved into my apartment. Uh, I had like, you know, I put an extra mattress on the floor. He was sharing my one bedroom inside a three bedroom apartment in Queens. And, you know, that, that was a whole interesting situation, but that, that's sort of how it happened. You know, it was like, because we had this opportunity, we figured let's go for it. So then what happened next? Yeah, I mean, so we we tried to make it happen, right? So we we lived very modestly, right? Uh, Sean made us lentils and eggs 
for dinner every day. We had Soylent for, for lunch every day, which is, you know, it's effectively like a protein shake. We shared our one bedroom, took turns staying over at our girlfriend's places while the, the other one's girlfriend came to visit there. Uh, and we, we tried to, to get that business off the ground and, you know, it, it kind of did get off the ground. Like it, within six months, it was doing about $8,000 a month in revenue, but we realized it wasn't going to get much bigger because the intercity bus industry is very small. Right. And so even if we knocked it out of the park and executed perfectly and everything went our way, the, the potential for the business was just not that large. And, um, so we, we sort of came to that realization right around the time that we started the Techstars mobility program in Detroit. This is like mid-2017. Um, and so we spent the full three months in Techstars, basically figuring out how to pivot the business into something else. Uh, and you know, we landed on something, which is basically uh, a solution to crowdsource demand for long-distance transportation. We ended up raising uh, just over a million dollars at the end of the Techstars program to, to pursue that idea. That one didn't work either. We pivoted again. The next idea didn't work. Pivoted again. The next idea didn't work. And it was basically a process of two years of us just pivoting through different business ideas broadly in the transportation tech space uh, before we landed on something that really clicked. And what would you say that kept you guys going from trying so many different ideas for two years, you know, until you were able to, you know, come, a come across uh, Denim? you know, which is this rocket ship that you guys are on now. But but what do you think, you know, kept you guys going and and why, you know, Denim, you thought that it was the one? I think Sean and I have very different personalities in a lot of ways. But one thing that we both have in common is that neither of us is ever going to quit. So it was never really a question that came to our minds, like, should we stop doing this? It was, it was just like, how do we make it work? Uh, in terms of why did Denim ultimately work? There's a lot of things, right? So like over the course of this two years, we got much better at understanding what would make an attractive business, right? We started thinking about it more the way that uh, an investor would look at it rather than the way that a college kid would about like what sounds like a cool business idea, right? And, and looking at it from the perspective of if this product actually got traction, what does it look like at scale, right? What does the economics of this business look like in the long run? And we were basically looking for something that was one, an attractive opportunity in the in the long run that looks like a really big, attractive market opportunity. Two, something that we felt really good about uh, in terms of like the mission. We we felt like we were accomplishing something that was impacting the world in a positive way, and we would feel good about devoting the next ten plus of our years, ten plus years of our lives, moving it forward. Uh, and three, something where we thought we had some sort of natural uh, competitive advantage, right? And this opportunity in freight payments really checked all those boxes, right? And so at a high level, the opportunity was, let's digitize freight payments. We will start by working with freight brokers, and we will automate their core financial operations. We will provide them access to affordable working capital, and we will help them better leverage their own data. And you know, it, it checked those three boxes. It's a massive market opportunity, right? Logistics is one of the only sectors that is measured in trillions of dollars. And so being able to capture a slice of that market allows you to build a really meaningful business. It is a, uh, it's a mission we can feel really good about, right? We are helping these small businesses succeed and excel and helping them, you know, achieve their own dreams. And then the last piece is that it, it's something that kind of plays to our relative strengths, right? We already had by this time, 
built a, a pretty extensive network in the transportation technology space. Sean's background was in fintech. My background, is, as we discussed, was as a lawyer. And so it all kind of played into this. So that's, that's kind of how, you know, we're like, this, this is the one we want to make work. If we can make it work, let's go for it. Uh, and then we were able to make it work, right? As we we started making phone calls about the peop- to, to people in the space to try to see if the idea had legs. And, you know, very quickly, we wound up getting our first customer and we got our second customer, then our third customer. And, you know, before you knew it, this, this was the thing. This is what we were doing. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. So for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Denim? How do you guys make money? We automate our clients' financial operations and we provide them working capital financing. And so we charge a fee on each invoice that's based on how big the invoice is and whether or not we are financing the invoice. Uh, and the nice thing about a usage-based product like this is that it really closely aligns our interests with our clients' interests, right? We grow when they grow. So when we think about what do we want to do from a product perspective, we're thinking about how do we make our clients' businesses grow? Uh, and that, that type of alignment works really well from you know, a retention perspective, from a marketing perspective, and ultimately from a business perspective. And how much capital have you guys raised to date for the company? We've raised $165 million in total. So that's $40, $40 million in equity and $125 million in debt. And how has it been the uh, the journey of raising money, you know, for, for this? And and what is the difference really between the debt side and, and then also the equity side for the folks that are listening to understand 
you know, why you have that different blend of, um, of ways of raising the money. Yeah. So, um, you know, why do we have these two different stacks of capital? Uh, the, the equity we raise is similar to when other tech companies raise equity, right? We're raising money from venture capitalists. This money funds, you know, our team's salaries, our marketing, like all the general business expenses. The reason that we are raising debt, which is something that uh, some fintechs do, but a lot of other companies don't, is that we are also providing working capital to our clients. And so that money comes from these debt facilities. It wouldn't be efficient for us to sell a big chunk of our company to raise some venture capital and then to just use that venture capital to lend out to clients, right? Instead, we can partner with these hedge funds or these banks who have much larger pools of capital and who are willing to deploy that uh, for, you know, attractive interest rate. And now on the venture side of things, you know, obviously you guys came out of the pivot. So how was that, uh, you know, experience of raising now money, you know, for a company that had pivoted and and how were you able to continue, you know, raising? What, what was that experience of going from one cycle to the next? Yeah, it was actually a wild experience. So this was early 2020. You know, we had something like six plus months of traction on this new business model, and it was growing very quickly, right? Every month, month after month, it was growing something like 30 to 50%. We felt very confident that there was a big opportunity here. We had just started building the team. So it was me, my co-founder, Sean, who was owning the product and engineering. We had hired a head of sales, and we had hired a head of operations, um, who were both, you know, industry veterans. And... We are going into this fundraise process. It goes phenomenally well. We actually got a term sheet before we formally kicked off the process. Uh, and then in the process of trying to close it, we get a cease and desist from uh, the former employer, of our head, or, head of sales, uh, basically stating that he's violating his non-compete and they're going to sue us into oblivion if we don't let him go. And that's a tricky situation to be in because you know this other company is worth something like $10 billion. There's basically zero chance that we can sustain a legal battle with them because we're imminently about to run out of cash. We aren't really in a position to let go of our head of sales because he's a phenomenal salesperson and is a big part of the reason why we were putting over that month-over-month growth and a big part of the reason why our investors were, were backing us. So we, you know, we basically called the bluff of this, this company. And for a month, maybe a month and a half, we're just going back and forth, right? Trying to negotiate a settlement agreement with them. They're sending us their response every Friday night to ruin our weekends, you know, like clockwork. Uh, ultimately, we come to a resolution with them that allows us to retain our head of sales. Um, and, you know, we're about to close the deal. And then COVID happens and the, you know, all the investors are panicking. And it, we're super nervous that our, our, our lead investor, Anthemis, was going to get spooked and back out. And, and to their credit, through all of this, uh, Anthemis did not get spooked, right? They didn't try to retrade on any of the terms because of the changing market. They, they basically just said, as soon as you resolve this legal dispute, we'll, we'll fund you. And then, you know, we resolved the legal dispute. They funded us. Deal closed. Which, you know, was a huge relief. Wow. Now, obviously, you're receiving, you know, those letters from the other party, like you were saying on Fridays, you know, to ruin your weekend. So uh, I guess, you know, that's quite an uncertain moment because if you guys would have not been able to uh, 
to really settle, you know, with them, then, you know, everything would have come crumbling down. So I guess, who do you think you guys needed to be in order to be effective in this situation? And then also to to really get out of your own heads, you know, and not, you know, ask yourself too much, what if, what if, what if, so that you could actually, you know, come to terms and, and, and get this thing wrapped up. Yeah, I think there's a couple attributes that would make someone successful in that type of situation and you know which i would attribute our ability to to uh, persevere in those situations too one is that you have to be a little bit stoic right you can't there's, there's so many highs and lows when you're building the company and that's just like one great example where we we got the term sheet and it's like oh god we're all gonna be rich and then it's like oh you know we're about to lose our head of sales everything's going to shit uh and if if you let those swings dictate your behavior you're going to be totally incompetent, right? It's, you're going to be alternating from these periods of like manic excitement to uh, just being terrified of, of making any decision. And so you have to take kind of a stoic approach of keeping an even keel through all of this. Um, part of that is that you need to be able to compartmentalize and focus on the things that are in your control. So there's a lot of things that still need to get done during this. We can't spend all of our time sitting here negotiating the settlement because if we do that, the business will stop operating and then we won't be fundable. So you have to continue working on the problems that you can do something about, even knowing that there are things that you might not be able to do something about that could kill the business, right? And that's just like a, a fact of starting a company is that there is always going to be a real risk of failure. Got it. Now, you know, in this case for you guys, imagine, you know, like uh, if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of denim is fully realized. What does that world look like? So I go to sleep, I wake up, brush my teeth, get on the computer. Uh, the, the vision for denim is realized because I wake up and denim is now a universal great payments network. And what I mean by that is that every carrier, broker, and shipper in the country is using Denim when they need to exchange money or data with these other counterparties, right? So a, a broker client, for example, is using Denim to evaluate these other counterparties to onboard their carriers and shippers to confirm rates and generate and send invoices to ingest and audit paperwork from their carriers to reconcile disputes to make payments, right? All of those workflows are being done on our platform. And because of that, we are in a unique position to offer them, um, you know, analytic services powered by our proprietary data, uh, customized financing and insurance products. Um, you know, like I said, covering the, the payments processes, credit cards, deposit accounts, right? There's a lot of different ways to monetize them once that core payments network is in place. Now, for the people that are listening to to understand, you know, as well, the scope and size of Denim today, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? We were over 70 employees. We are we process tens of millions of dollars in, in payments each month, over $100 million in payments each year. And that, that payments volume is continuing to grow. Now, you know, you were talking about the, um, the this segment, the freight segment. I mean, where do you think the market as a whole is heading? So the, the freight markets are in a rough spot right now, right? A lot of people are describing it like a freight recession. Um, and if, if you step back, you know, why is that the case? One big factor is that demand in the economy as a whole is down 
right? And so people are buying less stuff. So there's less stuff moving on the roads and trucks. Uh, and then the second piece is that 2020 and 2021 were extremely hot years for trucking. And so a lot of new trucking companies came into existence. But you've got the situation where there's an excess of supply and contracting demand. So the market is really dampening. So that that's it's a tough spot to be in, uh, you know, as business operating in the space. But when I think about where is it going, I think it's very likely that these freight spot rates will bottom out sometime in the next, you know, three to six months. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are tweeting now that it looks like maybe they've already bottomed out, but uh, you know, don't want to count my chickens there. Um, and and then it'll it'll bounce back, right? And it, it's a cyclical industry, so. We'll continue to see these ebbs and flows like we do in many other sectors. Um, but in terms of where the sort of freight tech space is going, that seems like something that is, uh, you know, it's like once you've opened Pandora's box, you can't get everything back in there, right? Five years ago, the industry was very reluctant to digitize. But now you've got companies like Convoy and Uber, which are making a really big splash in the industry. And you have all of these other freight brokers who realize that they can't compete unless they start adopting technology that gives them those equivalent capabilities. And so um, I think, you know, five years from now, every freight broker is going to be tech enabled. Some small percentage of them will be that way because they raised a ton of venture capital and built their software instead. But the really smart brokers are the ones who are using the profits they're generating from their business to pay for software that gives them those equivalent capabilities. Now, we've been talking about the future earlier, you know, just say, taking here a step out and, and you know, moment to, to reflect. You know, if I was to put you into a time machine and, you know, I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where you were still in Gibson Dunn, you know, pushing some paper behind the desk because that's what lawyers do. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you had the opportunity of uh, showing up to, 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 to that, you know, desk where you were at, you know, maybe like doing one of those all-nighters, you know, that you would pull out, you know, and trying to, to close a deal. And, and when you were thinking about that future where, you know, you were going to do something of your own and, 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 and put a, uh, you know, kind of like a solution on that problem that, that it was in front of you, if you were able to have a sit down with your younger self and give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, I would definitely tell my younger self to prioritize his sleep and to start sleeping properly. Uh, it probably wouldn't work because, you know, I think a lot of people told him that and he didn't listen, but uh, hopefully it would be more compelling coming from his future self. It, you know, with respect to why, I, it's hard to think of any one change that I've made in my life that has had a greater impact on every aspect of my life. So from the ages of 15 to 28, I slept very little, whether that was from, you know, partying or working or just reading books all night. Um, I, I basically paid no attention to how much sleep I got or the quality of my sleep and just became accustomed to operating with an incredible sleep debt. And, um, you know, at one point in 2019, Sean literally pulled me aside and was like, uh, he said something to the effect of, hey, I think you're getting stupider. And I think it's because you don't sleep properly, which is pretty jarring feedback to get from someone who, you know, one, has probably more insight into that than anyone else, right? Because he's he's known me since we were 14 years old and has seen my evolution over that time. And two, someone whose opinion I take 
more seriously than than almost anyone, right? And so um, he was, you know, as is often the case, he was right. Uh, and I, I wound up completely restructuring my life, paying a lot more attention to normalizing my sleep schedule. And uh, it's it's hard to overstate the impact that had on on everything, on my health, on my happiness, and on my productivity, right? So we went through that period of two years where we're pivoting around to different business ideas. Like I said, in, in 2019, we, we landed on the freight payments opportunity. I don't think it's a coincidence that I normalized my sleep schedule you know, shortly before that, right? And I, I think that the fact that I was now operating at this much higher caliber is part of the reason why we were able to make this last go at it uh, so much more successful. So what's the minimum you know, sleep that, uh, that you always shoot for? I, I shoot for eight hours a night. Um, sometimes I will get more. Sometimes I'll get less, but I, I try to average eight hours a night. That's amazing. By the way, I'm, I'm right there with you, and I, and I fully agree with the importance of sleep, and I don't think that founders you know, really think through you know, and, 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 and really understand how important it is. So I guess for the people that are listening that would want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, they can reach me by email. So it's b at denim.com. So just the letter b at denim, D-E-N-I-M dot com. Amazing. Well, hey, Barat, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today with us. It has been an honor to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. This is great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.